Welcome to the Josh Blair Ministry Podcast, a podcast all about bringing inspiration and encouragement to your daily walk with Jesus. We pray the message you hear impacts you as you follow Christ. We are in week four of our Problem of God series. It's a five-week series, and we're into week four of it. We, over the last three weeks, looked at the existence of God. We looked at the person of Jesus, and then we looked at hypocritical, judgmental Christians, and we addressed all of those things with the intention of addressing skeptics' uh, concern and disclaimer towards God, Jesus, and Christianity. It's what we've been diving into the la- this, this last four week, or three weeks, and this week we're looking at another major objection to Christianity from those who are skeptical of God or who are non- non-Christians, and that has to do with sex. We're going to be talking about sex this morning. So if you have young ones and you're not quite sure if they're ready for that, you can now allow them to leave or have them uh, hang tight. No, ma'am, you should be staying. Don't please, don't leave yet. (laughs) I see, I saw you. Stay tight because uh, we're going to be talking about sex. It seems like sex is, is something that everybody is comfortable with talking about except in the church. Would you agree? It's permeated our culture. It's, it's a part of daily life. We are inundated with it on a regular basis. It surrounds us, and, and yet we as a church and as people sometimes get very uncomfortable with the topic. I mean, some of you are sitting there like, hold up, Pastor, this, this is church. We should be talking about God and what God is doing. And I would agree, because God is the creator of sex, And so we're going to be addressing some of those things because we need to know what God says about it. Because sex is such a powerful thing in our culture that there are people who legitimately decide not to follow Jesus because of their view on God's view of sex. People will say, I can't follow Christianity, I can't follow God because they say X, Y, and Z in relation to sexuality. In fact, Uh, Bertrand Russell, who's a 20th century atheist philosopher, said the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. This idea that the modern world says that Christianity's teachings about sex are uh, antiquated, they're old-fashioned, they're out of date, and they're oppressive. The view of sexuality in Christianity is an oppressive view and it needs to be removed and done away with and has no place in culture whatsoever. This is, the, this is the typical response of people who are not believers. And the idea is that Christianity should not have a voice in relation to sexuality. And we need to talk about that as a church. We need to be a people that are able to address that. In fact, Margaret Sanger, who is the founder of Planned Parenthood, argued that Christianity is just a group of moralist people who want to oppress and uh, make people live in self-denial based on our teachings of abstinence before marriage. She believes that Christianity is just an oppressive religion trying to force people to, to do what they don't want to do and make people do, no, don't do what they want to do. And this is the view of modern society. And society believes that God is a person or someone who wants to strip us of our joy and our pleasure, and he is commonly seen as someone who wants to limit what we can and cannot do. But it isn't just culture that says that. There's a lot of the church that has a very similar view toward sex as well. Would you agree? The church 
has also had this weird understanding of God's attitude towards sex. The way the church has addressed sex has also made it seem that God's not too thrilled about it either. We've ironically taught people in the church, whether verbally or non-verbally, especially to our young people, that sex is negative, it's bad, it's dirty, it's filthy, you need to avoid it at all costs. Has anybody ever experienced that kind of idea in, in a church setting? So we've said, oh man, sex is gross, it's nasty, so save it for the one that you love in marriage. Right? Is that not like the most awkward, ironic thing that we've ever talked about in church? Like, it's filthy. Stay away from it so you can give it to the one you love. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So it's no wonder that the culture is so confused about sexuality because the church doesn't even know where we stand on sexuality. We don't even understand what God says and his view towards sex. And so we, as a people, need to address it. So we need to stop this morning and ask ourselves some very serious questions. And the questions we need to ask ourselves is, is God opposed to sex? Is sex evil or bad? And does, have, does God have something against sex? Because, to be honest here, if sex wasn't around, it, we wouldn't have all the evil things that it leads to. Sex is the uh, causes a lot of bad things in our world. It, if we didn't have sex, we wouldn't have pornography. We wouldn't have extramarital affairs. We wouldn't have prostitution or sex trafficking. We wouldn't have abortion. We wouldn't have rape. We wouldn't have dancing. <laughs> it's a little joke that people used to say that the church is against premarital sex because it will lead to dancing. Because uh, If you didn't know that joke, you can go home and take it and own it as your own. But the idea here is that Without sex, you don't get any of these bad things. Without sex, it seems like a lot of the world's, world's problems would be cured. So, is God anti-sex? Does he think that sex is bad? Or some of us even have the view, well, sex is okay, but only for procreation. If you're trying to have a baby, it's okay, but if you're not, we need to stay away from it. What does God say about that? What is, what is his view on it? To, to understand God's view, how many of you know it's important to go to God's word to see what he says about it? So this morning, we're going to go into God's Word. We're going to dive into 1 Corinthians, uh, looking specifically at chapter 7. But before we dive into it, I want to give you some context for the letter that Paul is writing to the, to the Corinthians. Paul's writing to a group of, of Christians in the first century, new church, and they live in a culture, Corinth, which is, is heavily sexually expressive, uh, not only in their cultural norms, but even how they worship their gods. They had, they had sex orgies. As a form of worship, they had temple prostitutes as a form of worship, and the act of sex was a form of worship for them. And in that culture, a group of people decide, and they accept Christ and decide to follow him, and yet they still continue to allow culture to dictate what is sexually acceptable. And so Paul begins to write to them to address some of these sexual perversions that find themselves still continuing to happen in the church. Paul writes letters to, to, to the Christian church addressing Christian sex orgies. He's saying, look, the way you used to worship there, now you've been transformed, you don't bring that into here. In fact, they were, they were doing a ton of crazy stuff. Even they began to do things, if you read the, the chapters around this context, they begin to do things that the culture even says is not sexually acceptable. Because they begin to mingle the perversion of their culture with a misunderstanding of grace and say, now that I'm saved... I can even go beyond what I used to do 
in the world. And so he begins to write this and address these things. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The culture of the, the Corinthian church was, was inundated with sexuality. And based on how Paul responds, we can understand what God's thoughts are towards sex. So looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to follow along, starting in verse 1, I'm going to be reading out of the message translation because I love how it translates what Paul writes to a modern context. It says, now, getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, this is Paul speaking, first, is it good to have sexual relations? So the people of Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago, are asking the question that we're asking today. Is sex good? Is it bad? Should we have it or should we not? They're, they're wrestling with this context of what is good for us and what is bad for us, and Paul answers it. Continue reading in, in verse 2. He says, certainly, is sex good? Is sexual relations good? He says, certainly, but within a certain context. It is good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. That's beautiful how Paul writes this out. He's saying, yes, sex is a good thing, but sex is a good thing in the context of marriage. Because sexual drives are strong, but the bond of marriage is strong enough to contain them. Sexual uh, desire is, is strong, but in a world of sexual disorder, you can have a balanced and fulfilled sex life in marriage. Not outside of marriage, not, uh, not additional to marriage, but inside the marriage relationship is where Paul is addressing where sex is good. Within the cultural context, they were inundated with perversion, with a culture that was sexually explicit and expressive. It was in their face. And we are in a culture of the very same thing. Sex is explicit in our culture, and it's in our face, and it's even more readily available to us than it was to them. And they are having to deal with temptation all around them, and Paul is saying, as husbands and wives, they should have sex in order to stand strong against sexual temptation. It's a way to have something proper designed by God in a way that is fulfilling and a way that keeps the enemy at bay. This is, what, this is what Paul says to us. Because God is the designer, and he designed men and women to have a balanced and sexually fulfilling life. Does this sound like a God who's anti-sex? No, not at all. He is for it in proper context. God's not a prude who's like, oh man, y'all nasty. All y'all want to do is sleep together. Y'all, this is gross. God's not that way at all. He's not saying any of those things. In fact, he's saying, this is a gift I have given to you. I want you to celebrate it, but use it properly. This is something that I have created for you. Because we understand, we spoke about this in the first week, that God is the creator of all things. He made us. He made the universe. He made the stars. He made the fish. Everything that is made was made by God. That means that God created sex, and he called it good. He said, this is a good thing. It wasn't like when God was creating us, and he made our bodies and he formed them out of the dust of the earth. And then he stood back and men and women, men and women are standing there. And he's like, hold up, what just happened? Okay, that part lines up with that part. And if they do, they'll make babies. Oh, I didn't think, I'm going to write that in my journal. Just develop sex. I had no idea what I was doing. He didn't do that. It wasn't a surprise to him. He wasn't like, oh, snap, what, how did, did is that a flaw? No, like, God designed it. For perfectly to work 
the way it's supposed to work. It wasn't a surprise to God. He designed it and he called it good. So let's continue to read, looking at verse 5, where Paul is actually telling us the frequency that we should engage as married couples sexually. And then I got all the men's attention in the house. Yes? The frequency. Go ahead, Pastor. Seven days a week? No. Oh, hold on just a second. We're going to go into what Paul says here. He says this. He says, abstaining, verses 5, abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if both of you agree, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times, then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Paul is saying that this is a gift from God that should be enjoyed frequently. Why should it be enjoyed frequently? Because it is a bond of unity between husband and wife to strengthen that bond and to be connected. And it's also a tool to use to keep the enemy at bay. He is saying because of our culture and it's so sexually perverse and so inundated with it and in your face, he's saying that you should frequently be together intimately to keep the enemy at bay because you don't know what the enemy is going to do and how he's going to try to tempt you to cause division between husband and wife. Because if he can split husband and wife, then he can split families, he can split lineages, he can split heritages, he can split up the call of God on people and try to lead brokenness from generation to generation to generation. And Paul is saying, sex is a tool, is a, is a gift that God has given us to have unity in marriage. It is a healthy thing, Paul is saying, and it's something that we should continually dive into, in a sense, to, to stay connected. Paul is recognizing that God takes sex seriously. He wants married couples, when they're able to, to engage in intimacy frequently. So the question then we ask is, why did Paul have this stance? Why did, why did Paul believe that sex was a gift from God given to us as a way of being united and to be enjoyed in marriage? We know this because Paul was a, was a Pharisee, which means that he studied the law and the scripture day and night before he ever came to Christianity or found faith in Jesus. And he read the Hebrew scriptures all the time. He knew it. He was, a, he was a zealot in relation to the scriptures. And he knew what the Old Testament talked about in God's view of sex. He understood that God encouraged it in amazing and sometimes explicit ways. Paul knew what God said in Proverbs chapter 5, what he talked about in Song of Solomon. He understood even uh, in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that when a young man married a wife, he was supposed to get a year off from military duty so that he could go home and just enjoy his wife. It wasn't just like they were going home and playing board games for a year. They were enjoying each other. Paul knew that this was a command from God that husbands and wives should be coming together in this way. The joy of sex is God's design and it points back time and time again to what Scripture tells us. Proverbs 5, 15, then 18 and 19 says this, Drink from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Some of you are just like, hold up. You get in your Bible, you're like, huh? Where is that in my Bible? I did not know that. Make a special note, I'm going to highlight that twice. Some of you didn't even know that that was in there. 
that God explicitly wrote about intimacy between husband and wife in ways that demonstrated his love and care for us. And he wants us to be in that kind of right relationship with each other and with him. Is sex in the Bible? Yeah, it is. And God says, I want you to take pleasure in it in proper context. In fact, if you doubt that that's true, you can go to your Bibles and look up one book called The Song of Solomon, or maybe it's even it's called The Song of Songs in some of your translations. And that is an explicit book of, uh, one translation of it is, a, is of, a, of a married couple who are using poetic language to demonstrate their love for one another in intimacy. It was so explicit, in fact, that, that in ancient Israel, young boys were not allowed to read it because it was too explicit until they reached proper age. That's wild to think, hey, hold on, young man, you should not be reading this part of the Bible yet. You ain't ready for it. That's how explicit it was. And yet we, we, we walk around thinking God is a prude in relation to sex. And he's just not. And we need to have a proper understanding of what God is saying to us. God is not in heaven saying sex, oh, y'all nasty. Don't talk about that, you pervs. You know, God's not walking around like, man, that guy's perverted, that's perverted, you perverted, everybody's perverted. He's not. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that sex is something that he's created, and he's, in fact, telling us in Song of Solomon's 5, verse 1, says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. In other words, he's saying, I want you to enjoy something I've created for you to enjoy. I've made this for you. It's an expression of love between a husband and a wife, and what I what makes me sick is that the enemy has distorted it and perverted it so much that we as husband and wives and believers don't even know how to relate to each other in it with proper context. It's become something that has become awkward for us. And it should not be. It should not be. The enemy does not have rights to sexuality. God has the one. He's the one who created it. The enemy just distorted it. And we need to put it back in the right context because the culture is wrong about sexuality and Christianity. God isn't someone who is disgusted by it or a killjoy who wants to steal your fun. He's the creator of it to be enjoyed the way he designed it, to be an adventure for a husband and wife committed to each other in love. And God's purpose is better than the world's purpose for the things that God created. Would you say amen? The world would say that sex outside of marriage in single life is the greatest pleasure that you can have and the highest place of enjoyment, but they're wrong. They're wrong. Have you ever had that idea, you know, that, oh, when you're single, man, that's, that's, where, that's where the enjoyment is. When you get married, everything fizzles out. It's, it's a myth. It's a lie. In fact, there was a groundbreaking study done on the case of marriage done by Linda J. Waite and Maggie Gallagher, who pointed out that 40% of married people have sex twice a week compared to just 20% of single and cohabitating men and women, people that just live together but are not married. They say that 40% of married women say that their sex life is emotionally and physically satisfying compared to just 30% of single and cohabitating women. They say 50% of married men are physically and emotionally content in their marriage and sexuality opposed to 38% of single and cohabitating men. Does that sound like a single life or an unmarried life is the most fulfilling way to receive pleasure and to give pleasure? No. It's a myth that the enemy has tied to our sexuality to try to keep us in bondage and to destroy the thing that God has given to us. God's design for us in marriage will lead us to the greatest heights of pleasure and sexuality that we could ever experience anywhere else. It's God's design for us. Culture would have us believe that any limitation or any restriction 
is an obstruction and is an oppressive movement to our freedom in sexuality, but this is not the case. God's limitations and restrictions on sex are for our benefit, not for our obstruction. The world would say, if you tell me how to live sexually, you're obstructing my freedom. You're, you're being an oppressive people. And, and sometimes that can get into our minds and into our souls, and people will turn away from God because they say, well, let people do whatever they want to do in private in their own bedrooms as long as it doesn't affect me. And we're missing the point. We're missing the point that we are eroding the understanding of a gift that God has given to us. Restrictions and limitations and boundaries are not bad things. I look at a fish, and a fish it has a boundary and a limitation to water. Right? We don't see fish walking around on land. Because in water, they can thrive, and they can live, and they can have enjoyment, as far as I know. I mean, I don't know what a fish does on a regular basis, but I think they're pretty happy in the water that they're living in. Right? But outside of the water, the moment they're outside of the water, they start a slow process of death and dying. Would we say that boundary of water is a limitation to their freedom? No, the boundary of the water is their freedom. And so in sexuality, would we say the boundaries and the limitations that God gives us in our sexuality is an obstruction of our freedom? Or would we say those boundaries are our freedom? That is where the nature of health and balance comes in sexuality in the marriage bed. That is not an obstruction of our freedom or an obstacle that we have to overcome or something, a shackle that we must rip off of our lives. That is where life happens. You probably heard this illustration too before where uh, the, the understanding of a fire in a home. You've, anybody heard this before? A fire in a fireplace brings warmth, brings life, brings relaxation, brings intimacy. You know, if you start a fire and it just like you melt, right? Anybody? have a fireplace? Do we still have those in California? I don't know, you know, some of us do, but we can only burn it like never. Uh, but we, <laughs> but it, it used to be a place where families would gather, people, like it was just an intimate setting, it was beautiful, it made warmth, it had, you, you could cook on it, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. But you take that fire out of the place that was created for it in the home, you set it in the middle of the living room, and now that fire is not a place of warmth and relaxation, it's a place of destruction and pain. Marriage was created to, to house the passion and the drive of sexuality. And when it is in marriage, then we have, we have joy, we have light, we have warmth, we have intimacy. You take that outside of what was, created, what was created for it, and you place it in the middle of something that has no ability to contain it, and now it's a raging forest fire that burns up every area of our life. And God is saying to us, I have created a boundary for your protection and for your good, for your benefit, not outside of it. It's not healthy for you. It's not balanced for you. It's not going to be fulfilling. It's going to rob you of what I really created it for. Outside of marriage, we don't have fulfillment and intimacy. It is a liar to us. It leaves you broken. It leaves you feeling used. Good sex happens over time and is a work that when two people work together will have the best thing that they've ever experienced in relation to intimacy with another person. And that happens within marriage. So is God anti-sex? Absolutely not. God celebrates it, but again, within proper context. So for us this morning, as we come to a close, for those of us who are married, I would challenge you to look at your level of intimacy in context of God's word. 
What does God say about it? Why is it important? And how are you connecting with your spouse in an intimate way that builds strength and connection and keeps the enemy at bay? Think about that. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to help you. Because what I find interesting is that when you're single, your drive and your passion is to be intimate before marriage. When you're married, your drive and your passion is a lack of intimacy in marriage. It's no wonder that the enemy attacks the very thing that God has given to us to keep us united and keep him at bay. When, when, you, when you are dating, it's like a struggle. It's like a fight for your life not to pass that boundary. Even if you're a committed relationship with Jesus, it is a struggle because the, in, the enemy wants you to set a fire in the middle of your living room. When you're married, the enemy tries to keep you away from that as much as he can because he knows if he can keep a husband and wife separated, he can, he can be devious in his actions in their marriage and their families and their children and so on and so forth. And he knows if they are intimate, then he, they've closed a door in an area where he wants to bring temptation and trouble. And so that is my challenge for us this morning. If you are a single person, if you're not married, I want you to recognize that God's boundaries on sex are for your good, not to steal your joy, but to give you life. It's good for you to stay within the boundary of what God has created sex for because God's best for you in relation to sexual intimacy is found in marriage and nowhere else. Don't look anywhere else. I know the struggle. I understand the temptation. But it's not going to fulfill you in any way that leaves you satisfied the way that God has created it in marriage. 